Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us, and we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. So hold on to your seats. Mark 13, and as he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must, be, must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as, ha not, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us understanding this morning to understand this very difficult passage. We pray that you would give us hearts to receive your truth this morning, that we would be receptive to your truth, that you would soften hardened hearts this morning by your spirit, and that you would accomplish your purposes here this morning amongst each of us. We pray this for the glory of Christ's name and for our good. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've seen thus far that uh, Jesus has had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That was Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. He enters into Jerusalem. The people proclaim, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he enters into the city. He then cleanses the temple. As a, as a sign of judgment against Israel for their wickedness and un- unbelief. And then from the end, of verse, uh, the end of chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12, Jesus has this verbal battle with the religious leaders who demonstrated their hardness of heart and the spiritual state of Israel. In general, Israel didn't have a heart for God nor a heart for the Messiah despite all their religiosity. And so chapters 11 and 12, he's, he's had these verbal battles with these, with these religious leaders. And at the end of chapter 12, he warns his disciples about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And it's at this point of chapter 13 that we're told in verse 1 that Jesus came out of the temple. And as he comes out, one of his disciples draws Jesus' attention to the glory of the temple and the buildings in Jerusalem. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple was considered one of the great wonders of the world. People were amazed by the beauty and the human ability to create such a glorious building. But Jesus, in his response to his disciple, clearly demonstrates that he wasn't impressed by the external pomp of the temple especially since there was no religious purity by the people who claimed to worship God at the temple. Now, no doubt this disciple thought that Jesus would be impressed. He definitely didn't foresee Jesus' response in verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus prophetically announces the destruction of Jerusalem 
and the temple. It will all be destroyed. There will not be one stone upon another. All of it will be thrown down. Now, it's, it's this prophetic announcement that leads to the following discourse, which is the rest of chapter 13, what theologians call the Olivet Discourse. And this is, without doubt, the most difficult passage to understand in all the Gospel of Mark. In fact, all of the Gospels that record it. Scholars and theologians have wrestled with the complexity of this incredible passage. And part of the reason it's so difficult is because it's prophetic in nature. And almost everything Jesus says has allusions to the Old Testament. You see, it appears, when you read Mark 13, it appears that at one moment, Jesus is speaking about something that will happen during the disciples' own generation, and then all of a sudden, it seems as though he's speaking about something far later in the future. And and there's no real transitions between the two. And so there's always been debate about the details of these things. It's like Jesus is going back and forth between the two, and many scholars have tried to figure out which is which. But this is often how prophecy works in the scriptures. As Dever says, it's in the nature of prophecy to foreshadow more than one event. You may have heard this illustration before, but I find it helpful. Prophecy can be viewed through the lens of looking at a mountain range. From a distance, it seems that all these mountain peaks are extremely close to one another. But the closer you get, you realize the next mountain peak is still quite far away. That's often how prophecy works. The first mountain peak is is a small fulfillment of a specific prophecy, but there are more mountain peaks to be traveled to see the fullness or the completion of the prophecy. So, for example, many of the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah seem to speak about his sufferings, but also his reign as the warrior king. But what wasn't clear, especially to the Jews, was that these different descriptions of the Messiah, on the one hand, he seems to be a suffering Messiah, and on the other hand, he seems to be this warrior-like king, what the Jews didn't grasp was that those two descriptions were were referring to different comings for the Messiah. His first coming, where he would come as the suffering servant to die for the sin of the world, and his second coming, where he would come as the righteous judge of the universe. See, in other words, some of the prophecies were partially fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But the fullness of those prophecies won't be complete until his return. And I think that's what's going on here in Mark 13. You have a partial fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. And Jesus is speaking about both. Now, I'm a bearer of bad news this morning in that I haven't solved all the details of the text either. We ought to approach a text like this with a level of humility We ought to acknowledge where we're uncertain and focus on the things that really matter in this passage, which is what I hope to do this morning. You see, Jesus makes this prophetic announcement about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. 
And while sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, he would have actually been looking down upon the temple. Four of his disciples come to him, asking him when these events will happen. That is, when will the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem happen? It's verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the, the, Olives, the opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They want to know when Jesus' prophecy is going to be fulfilled, when the destruction of the temple is going to take place. And from verses 5 through to 37, Jesus seeks to answer their question. But he goes beyond their question. He does answer their question, when will the destruction of Jerusalem take place? But he then goes further by interweaving the immediate coming destruction of Jerusalem with future realities. Listen to how Wynandi explains it. This is a long quote, but I think it's helpful. Jesus' disciples specifically asked about the future destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus, on one level, addressed this question. But his response throughout his discourse is not simply addressing that question, but also simultaneously addressing two interrelated issues. What his future disciples slash church will experience during the interim between his resurrection and his second coming. And what they will experience immediately prior to his coming in glory and power upon the clouds of heaven at the end of time. He interweaves these various issues because they are theologically or revelationally one entwined issue. The signs preceding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple are the same signs that will accompany his church through her history, and these same signs will thus immediately precede Jesus' coming in glory. Did you catch that? What Jesus is doing is demonstrating that all the characteristics or signs that will define the time preceding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD will also be the characteristics or signs that will define the age of the church, the period between the resurrection and the return of Christ. The period in which we currently find ourselves in and every Christian who's ever lived. You see, we are living in the last days, but so was the Apostle Paul. Jesus proclaimed in his first coming that this was the end of the beginning. Sorry, the beginning of the end. Reverse that. <laughs> this was the beginning of the end. In other words, Jesus' first coming set in motion the final age of human history before the destruction of this world and the creation of a new heavens and new earth. And the events preceding the destruction of Jerusalem will characterize the age of the church, the period between Christ's resurrection and his return in glory. These are interrelated issues. The destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Lord Jesus are interrelated issues. 
And this is why it seems Jesus can simultaneously be talking about something that's going to happen very soon, but also something that's very far into the future. Now, I hope that makes sense to you. If it doesn't, I apologize. But this is a large passage, so I'm not going to be able to cover all the details. But what I want to do is summarize the passage and highlight the most important things. Because whether or not some of these things are speaking specifically to 70 AD, the fact is many of the signs will also define the age of the church right now. So when answering the disciples' question, when will all these things be, what will the signs be, the first thing Jesus tells them in verse 5 to 8 is that there will be calamity. There will be calamity. Look at verse 5 to 8, deception and calamity. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pain. So there will be false Christs, false prophets, there will be wars and rumors of wars, there will be natural disasters. These things will happen in the immediate period before the destruction of the temple. But these things will also characterize the period between Christ's resurrection and his second coming. But Jesus also tells us in verse 7 that these things must take place, but the end is not yet. These signs will define the last days, but the end is not yet. You see, every generation for the last 2,000 years could point to these kinds of things and think that they're the last generation. In fact, almost every generation tends to think they're the last generation before the end comes. And the reason is, is because we're far more narcissistic than we realize. We think we're living in the most unusual days, and we're not. Now, could we be the last generation? Possibly. Are we closer to the end now than, say, 1,500 years ago? Of course. But that doesn't mean we're the last generation. It's not our responsibility to know this. So what is our responsibility Well, what is it that Jesus exhorts us with in light of these things? He says two things. Don't be deceived and don't be alarmed. Don't be distressed over the fact that there will be calamity. Church, I think there are way too many professing Christians that are alarmed and distressed with what's happening in our world. And we ought not be. Jesus has already told us these things will take place. In fact, they must take place. These things should not be a terror to us. You see, we've become convinced living in Canada that peace is the norm. It's not. The norm is calamity, war, corruption, and deception. And Christ warns his disciples, he, and he tells us these things, and he tells us that these things must take place so that we not be overcome with anxiety and distress. And here's why. Distress, being alarmed, always leads 
to an obsession of the thing we're distressed about. And I've seen that more clearly in the last 18 months. When we're alarmed, when we're distressed about something, it will always cause us to lose our focus as followers, as Jesus. You see, because we know that the birth pains, as Jesus describes it, will define human experience, we as the church can, as Matthew Henry puts it, enjoy a holy security and serenity of mind when all about us is in the greatest disorder. See, I think C.S. Lewis captures this so well in his own day when he was reflecting on the realities of the atomic bomb and how there was so much fear and concern about such a powerful weapon. And this is what he says. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. What about in our own day? What are we thinking too much about? How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, in an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that but they need not dominate our minds. What's dominating your mind right now? You see, whatever we are distressed over will dominate our minds. And this is why Jesus says, be not alarmed. So Jesus in verse 5 to 8 warns the disciples about what will happen in the world. And then in verse 9 to 12, he warns them about what will happen to them personally. They will be persecuted. Persecution will be the experience of his followers. Look at verse 9. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Most of what is described here did in fact happen to Jesus' disciples. But these things have defined the Christian experience for the last 2,000 years. Persecution and hatred will be the normal experience of disciples of Jesus. And notice the reason for why this will be. Jesus says, for my name's sake, to bear witness about me. This is God's plan that through persecution and hatred, the disciples of Christ will testify to Jesus as the Savior and Lord of all. Also notice that it won't just be political authorities or other religious groups that will persecute, but it will be one's own family. Son will betray father and a father his children. Families will turn on each other based solely upon whether family members identify with Jesus. See, throughout history and even now, there are many men and women who have been been betrayed by their own family because they embraced Jesus Christ. This happens in many countries today. We will not just face opposition at the hands of the state, but even our own families. See, Jesus, by the very nature of who he is, divides people. You're either for him or against him. Think about this. Something as small as a vaccine has divided many families. How much more Jesus Christ? See, because of this, Jesus tells us, as followers of him, to be on guard. That is, to be ready. We shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes. As Jesus says in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. We're called to be on guard to be ready for whatever may come our way, to count the cost. See, living in Canada, we haven't really faced this reality like many other Christians across the world and throughout history. Some of us who came from other religious backgrounds and then were saved, at times you may have faced hostility from loved ones. We may have faced mocking when we witnessed to others, but living in Canada, we as followers of Jesus, Jesus have faced very little persecution. Now, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I'm convinced that if Canada continues down the trajectory it's headed, persecution will come in far more severe ways. Because the new values and beliefs of Canada are antithetical to what we believe as Christians. And instead of us worrying and being distraught, may we be on guard and ready to count the cost. May we be found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ and bear witness to him. And remember this great comfort which Jesus provides. The one who endures to the end will be saved. 
So Jesus warns them of many of the things that will take place, many of the signs that will happen, wars, natural disasters, persecution. And now in verse 14 to 23, Jesus begins to describe the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem that he prophesied about in verse 2. And what we see is that disaster will fall upon Jerusalem. Jesus describes an extremely horrific moment in Israel's history. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Jesus makes reference to this abomination of desolation, which the disciples would have clearly understood. The term originated in the book of Daniel, which described a figure who, uh, sorry, which described a figure who would desecrate the temple. He forbade, uh, this event actually took place 150 years earlier when the king Antiochus conquered Jerusalem. He forbade the Jews from offering their Levitical sacrifices, and instead he had swine sacrificed on the altar, an unclean animal. A statue of Zeus, and most likely of Antiochus himself, was set up in the temple. He also set up a brothel in the temple. It was a horrific moment in Israel's history. And Jesus uses that historical moment to explain what's going to happen in Jerusalem very shortly when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. Something similar will happen that will culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple itself. Now there's the de debate about what this was, but most likely what Jesus is referring to is the period just before the destruction of the temple when Jewish zealots between 68 and 69 AD occupied the temple and actually allowed criminals into the Holy of Holies and committed murders in the temple itself. In fact, history shows us that when these events were occurring, there was a major exodus out of Jerusalem, many of whom were Christians, which Jesus told them to do in verses 14 to 16. People fled because they knew how horrific the suffering would be, as Jesus describes in verse 17 to 20. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created and, until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And this is why he tells them in verse 23, but be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. And history actually shows us that many Christians, many followers of Christ were ready for this moment. Many fled because they understood the times. So having told the disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Jesus now, I think, turns to his second coming. He turns to the deeper meaning of all of this. He doesn't tell us the timeline, but he simply begins to tell them of what is coming in the future. 
See, what Jesus is doing here is he's tying the destruction of the temple. There's things about what happened in 70 AD and what preceded 70 AD that relates to his ultimate return. And what we see in verses 24 to 10, sorry, 24 to 27, is that Christ will return to bring judgment and deliverance. Christ will return to bring judgment and deliverance. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, these four verses are alluded to in the Old Testament in about six or seven different passages. So you have six or seven different passages in the Old Testament that are alluded to here. Jesus here speaks of the collapse of the cosmos. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. This imagery is immersed in Old Testament scripture, particularly the book of Isaiah. Both Isaiah 13.10 and Isaiah 34 verse 4 make reference to these things. And both those passages are in the context of judgment. Isaiah 13.10 speaks of the judgment of Babylon, which in the scriptures is used to convey those who stand in opposition to God. Isaiah 34 verse 4 is in the context of God promising to judge the nations. You see, the point that Jesus is making is that just as judgment will fall upon Israel in 70 AD, so a greater judgment is coming when he returns. All the nations will face his judgment. He will return, as he says, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This, of course, is a reference to Daniel 9. 13 to 14, which speaks of this divine figure who is like a son of man, and he will, be, he will bring, he will be given an everlasting dominion, and all the nations will serve him. In other words, Jesus is coming to judge the nations and establish his dominion. But we also see in verse 27 that he's also going to bring deliverance for his children. He will gather his elect from across the world and they will rest under his protection and serve him gladly. You see, the return of Christ is both a day of celebration and a day of mourning. For the godless and the wicked, it's a day of mourning. For the redeemed and the godly, it's a day of celebration because it's a day of vindication. Listen to how Tertullian puts it. If you examine this whole passage of Scripture from the inquiry of the disciples down to the parable of the fig tree, you will find it makes sense at every point in connection with the coming of the Son of Man. He will bring both sorrow and joy. The Son of Man is coming in the midst of both calamities and promises, both the grief of nations and the longing of the saints. He is the common element of both. He who who is common to both will end the one by inflicting judgment on the nations and will commence the other by fulfilling the longings of the saints. His coming will both be a day of sorrow and a day of celebration. He will judge and he will deliver. 
And so Jesus conveys to the disciples what the destruction of Jerusalem will be like in verses 14 to 23. He speaks to them about his own glorious return in verses 24 to 27. And now from verse 28 to 37, he gives his actual answer for when these things will be. He really gives the timing of it all. Now in verse 28 to verse 31, I think he, I think he specifically addresses when the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple will be. And then verse 32 to verse 37 Though it speaks to that specific situation, I think it goes further in explaining the return of Christ. In other words, verse 28 to 31 explains when verse 14 to 23 will happen. Okay? Verse 28 to verse 31 explains when verse 14 to 23 will happen. And verse 32 to 37 explains to a certain level when verse 24 to 27 will happen. So look at verse 28. From the, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaf, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now notice in verses 29 to 30, Jesus uses the language of all these things taking place, which should draw us back to verse 4, when the disciples asked Jesus, when will all these things be? When are they to be accomplished in reference to the destruction of the temple? And so here in verse 28 to 31, I think Jesus is officially giving his answer to when Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. But he doesn't give a specific date. He instead points them to a fig tree to learn a lesson from it. As soon as you see fig trees, the fig tree's branches becoming tender and begins to grow leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things happening, that is from verse 5 to 23, you know that the destruction of Jerusalem is drawing near. And in verse 30, he gives a little more clarification by stating all of this will happen before this current generation will pass away. In other words, this will happen in the lifetime of the disciples. And the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD happened during the lifetime of the disciples. 70 AD was the fulfillment of the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and the temple, which Jesus said would happen in verse 2. So he tells them when these things will happen, the things that were specifically tied to their question in verse 4, which was when the temple would be destroyed. But notice he doesn't give them an exact day or time, which is why in verse 32 to 37, he calls for vigilance and alertness. Because just as the day or hour of the destruction of Jerusalem is not known, so also Christ's ultimate return is not known. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. 
It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I was once a part of a church where the the founder, not of the church I was at, but the, the founder of the movement of churches had twice predicted the date for Christ's return. And twice he was wrong. Which is no surprise, as Jesus says, no one knows but the Father. Not even Jesus in his humanity knew. But what Jesus is conveying to his disciples and to us is because we don't know the day or the hour of his return, we must be ready. We must be prepared for his imminent return because as he says, he could come suddenly. We ought to live with the anticipation that he could come tomorrow. We ought to be found by him awake and not asleep. Now I want to come back to this last section shortly, but there's a few things I want us to briefly reflect on in this passage as a whole. The first is this. Though this entire chapter is full of calamity, wars, natural disasters, deception, persecution, though this passage is full of calamity, we also see Jesus' sovereign will and his care for his people in the midst of it all. All of this calamity that Jesus speaks of somehow fits into the sovereign will of God. You see this in his predictions about the future. You see it in his language in verse 7, don't be alarmed, these things must Take place. Why must they take place? Because God has decreed that they must take place. Even the persecution of his disciples has a purpose to it, so that they will testify about the Christ. He gives the Spirit to help those in time of need, verse 11. He promises salvation to the one who perseveres, verse 13. He shows his mercy to the elect by shortening the days, verse 20. He will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth, verse 23. See, all of this shows, demonstrates his sovereign will, but also his care for his followers. He will not abandon his people. And therefore, followers of Jesus, don't be alarmed. Don't give in to despair. Don't be distressed. Trust in his sovereignty and in his care for you. Secondly, we see here that history is going to unfold and culminate in a day of reckoning. There's so much talk today about existential threats to our human existence. The most obvious, of course, is the the doomsday narrative by politicians regarding climate change. But there's also things like AI and totalitarian regimes. People are terrified about the future. Christians are terrified about the future. There's this recent new sculpture that's been creating a lot of buzz. The Mexican artist Ruben Orozco, I don't know if I've said that right, has created this piece of art by submerging a sculpture 
of a young teenage girl in a river in Spain. So the sculpture is in, in, the, in the river, and all you have, all you can see of the sculpture is the girl's face with the water right up to her chin. And guess what the title of the sculpture is? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. And the whole point is to say that if we don't change as a human society, then this is what the future will look like for our children and grandchildren because of the climate. People are terrified about the future. But let me be clear. The greatest danger, the most terrifying reality that lies in the future is not climate change. It's not AI nor government tyranny. The greatest danger that awaits humanity is the coming of Jesus Christ and not being ready for his coming. This will be a day of reckoning where he will judge the nations and the peoples in his holy wrath. You might be here today and you might not believe that, but hear me this day. On that day, you will not be able to say you were not warned. So dreadful is this coming day for the unrepentant sinner that the scriptures tell us in Revelation 6, which I read for us, that the people will cry out for the rocks and mountains to fall upon them so they might be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. This will be the most dreadful day in human history for those who are not ready. So you might ask, how can one be ready? How can one be prepared for such a day? Well, the answer is quite simple. How you respond to Jesus in his first coming will determine how he responds to you at his second coming. If you embrace him now as the Savior and Lord of your life, then you will be ready for when he comes again. But if you refuse, you will wish you had never been born. You will either be gathered as one of his elect children or you will be judged as one of his enemies. And so embrace Jesus now and he will embrace you when he returns. He delights to turn his enemies into friends. Finally, I also want to speak to, briefly speak to us who are followers of Jesus. Those of us who have been saved and have, have given our lives to Jesus. And this leads me back to the final section of the passage about being awake or being asleep for the return of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus were, were to return tomorrow, based upon how you're living right now, would he find you awake or asleep? And I'm not here talking about saved or unsaved. I'm talking about whether or not you are living in such a way that demonstrates that you are awake or you are living in such a way that reveals that you are asleep. How will he find you? Will he find you glued to your cell phone, wasting hours upon hours on meaninglessness and emptiness? Will he find you being consumed with materialism? Will he find you being unfaithful to your spouse? Will he find you, be, uh, find you neglecting your children? How will he find us? Will he find you reading article after article after article that in no way will prepare you for his coming? 
Will he find you with your mind consumed with earthly affairs and not that which is above? Will he find you full of anger and bitterness in light of what's happening in our society? Will he find you constantly arguing with people over trivial matters? Will he find you scrolling the internet, looking at pornography? How will he find us? Here's how I hope that he will find me. And here's how I hope that he will find us. I hope that he will find us sacrificing our time, our energy, and our resources in the lives of others. I hope that he will find us having friends and family in our homes and enjoying a meal together full of laughter and joy. I hope he will find us praying and meditating on the scriptures, evangelizing the lost, enjoying the good things that God has given us. I hope he will find us gathering with God's God's people on a regular basis for the worship of our true God. I hope he will find us waiting and ready and longing for his soon return. Will he find us awake or asleep? I pray that it would be true of all of us, that he would find us awake. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this is a weighty passage. And it's tempting in our hearts to play it down, to neglect it, to not take the severity of it seriously. And I pray that each of us would, that we would feel the weight of these words and that we would respond accordingly. Father, we long for the day when Christ will come back to establish establish true justice upon the earth, to vindicate his righteous children. We long for the day where there will be no more rumors of war, but that there will be everlasting peace and righteousness. We look forward to this day and we cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in his name. Amen.